Turning your Bibles tonight to Psalm 83, at least that's where we'll begin. And I wanted to, to mention to you ladies that Sunday night following the evening service, uh, there'll be a, a meeting for you um, to talk about the meal ministry here at the church. And so if you're interested in participating in that, then um, be sure to come to that meeting after the service on Sunday night. Lord willing, we'll try to remember to remind you on Sunday morning. Psalm 83, and let's, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this service tonight. And what a privilege it is to come and to gather around your word and we pray that you would be be our teacher to show us and give us the insights from your word that we need in this hour we thank you for each one who has come what an unusual thing it is in this day and time for a church to have so many to come out to a Wednesday night service we thank you for them and we pray that you would bless them and uh, encourage them from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last two messages, as we've continued to study the importance of the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 8, if ye continue in my word, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We have talked about the truth from the Word of God in our last two messages concerning Israel. Truth that the people of this nation are not being told because we haven't continued in the Word of God, not just in the government, but in the churches. And the result is that we as a nation are being lied to by our government. And their mouthpieces in the media. Sunday night, we looked at this 83rd Psalm, which I believe is the single most important passage in the Bible to understanding what is taking place in the Middle East and why it's taking place. And I wanted to start here uh, tonight, particularly to orient ourselves to verse 4, and also to look at how the Spirit of God reduces all of the words of the talking heads and all of the words of the experts and explains the situation in just seven verses. In verses 5 through 8, he identifies these groups of people. In verse 2, he tells us that they are the enemies of God, first and foremost, that they hate God. In verse 3, he tells us that the earthly object of their hatred of God is their hatred for his people, Israel. And then in verse 4, the Spirit of God tells us the purpose of these groups, these peoples who are listed here. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. 
that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. There's the problem in the Middle East. There's the conflict. And these people who are listed here that surrounded Israel when this psalm was written, possibly as we talked about Sunday night, about 900 B.C., it is their descendants today. The Arab Muslims in the nations of Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Egypt and Qatar and the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and others. These are Edom and Moab, the Ishmaelites, the Hagarenes, Gebel, Ammon, the Philistines, Asher, the children of Lot. These are those people of our day that surround Israel. 400 million Arabs and Muslims surrounding 7 million Jews with the same purpose today that we read that these people had in verse 4. But tonight, we want to think about why. Why it's like that. We want to think about why Israel is hated. Why is it the desire of not just these Arab nations, but really of virtually all the nations of the earth? Why is it the desire to cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance? And I have to say very sadly that because of our policy here in this country, because of our support for a two-state solution, the United States, to some degree, has to be included in this group of nations. But why is it like that? Why are Israel, why are the Jews hated by this world? Well, the answer, I believe, begins in Genesis chapter 12. And we want to turn back there, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. If you have uh, headings in your Bible... It probably says above chapter 12, the call of Abraham. This is God's call to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. And what the Lord says to Abraham here, I believe, is at least gives us some very important insight as to the reason that he and his seed, the children of Israel, are hated. There's two phrases that we want to focus on. At the end of verse 2, the phrase, and thou shalt be a blessing. And at the end of verse 3, the phrase, 
And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, how was Abraham going to be a blessing? And how is it that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed? Well, there's a portion of Scripture that I think answers the question of how Abraham was to be a blessing and, and how it is in him that all the families of the earth are blessed. So I'd like for you to turn over in the New Testament to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and let's read it, verse 1. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, notice verse 4. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. There are seven things listed here that tell us how Abraham would be a blessing and how in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And there are two of them, you can breathe a sigh of relief, that we want to talk about tonight. And it's like that because it's from these two that the other five things spring, if you will. And it's for these two that I believe Abraham and his seed are hated. The first one there in verse 4 is the giving of the law. The giving of the law. The giving of the law was an incredibly important event in God's dealing with men. Before the law was given... Before the law was written on earth, we read in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15 that men showed the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Now, we see an example of what Paul's talking about in the life of Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, we read that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And because the work of the law was written in Cain's heart, his conscience bore witness that he had done wrong. And his thoughts did not excuse his action. His thoughts accused him. 
And so Cain thought he could hide his wrong that he had done in killing his brother by burying Abel in the ground. Now I think we know that because when the Lord came and he confronted Cain and he asked him, where is Abel? Where is Abel? And Cain said that he didn't know where Abel was. The Lord said to Cain, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So Cain, because of his conscience, because of the work of the law written in his heart, he knew that he had done wrong. His conscience did accuse him. But the way that he dealt with that was to try to hide Cain's body in the earth. But we can't hide our sin from the Lord. This is an example of the dispensation of conscience. And in addition to the law of God written in men's hearts, their conscience and their conscience also bearing witness, the Spirit of God was also working. The Spirit of God was also moving in the world because God said in Genesis 6 and verse 3, My spirit shall not always strive with men. And men, even though they did not have the written law of God, they rejected the work of the law written in their hearts as the Spirit of God strove with them. They rejected that. And the conscience that accused Cain did not accuse these people that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. Their conscience actually excused them to the point that God looked upon the earth, we read in Genesis chapter 6, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and God said that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so God brought the judgment of the flood. After the flood, there was still no written law. There was human government established on the laws of nature and nature's God. And there was still the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and either accusing them or excusing them. And there was the work of the Spirit of God still striving with men. But man rejected this law written in their hearts. They rejected the Spirit of God striving with them. And in Romans chapter 1, we read how that men changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator. We read how God gave them up unto vile affections. They went against the laws of nature and nature's God. The women, we read in Romans chapter 1, the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. And this rebellion 
brought on the judgment of God against Sodom and Gomorrah. It brought his judgment on the nations of Canaan. We talked uh, uh, the other night, I believe, Sunday night a week ago, about the sins of uh, the, the people of the land of Canaan and how the Lord gave them 460 years to repent. The, the, um, the wickedness of the Amorites is not full, the Lord told Abraham. This rebellion, though, this rejection of the law of God written in their hearts, it brought on the judgment of God at Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment against the nations of Canaan. It's just as Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. Sin was in the world before the law was written. And as a result, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though there was no written law uh, for sin to be imputed to, no written law for sin to be laid to men's charge, But as we've seen, that doesn't matter that there was no law written. There was a law that that created responsibility and accountability of men to God. Because that which may be known of God was manifest in them. God showed it to them through the work of the law that was written in their hearts, through their conscience accusing or excusing them through the Spirit of God striving with men, through the preaching, the old-time gospel preaching of Seth and Enoch and Methuselah and Noah and Shem and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. That's the internal working of God in the lives of men. And then there was the external proof, the witness of creation, And all of this worked together so that even though there was no written law, men were without excuse. And God was just and right and true and clear when he exercised his judgment. But then God gave his written law. God gave his written law. And as we said a few moments ago, the giving of the law was an incredibly important event in God's dealings with men. Because now it's written. Now there is a written standard. There's an interesting verse that I've read many times, but never really, I guess never really noticed it before. It's in John chapter 15, if you'll, if you'll turn back there to John's Gospel chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 22. The Lord Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken unto them, 
They had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. There's a thought here that I'd like to suggest to you. The Lord Jesus says two things in this verse. First of all, he said, if I had not come. That word come is in the present tense. Then he says, if I had not come and spoken. Spoken. This word spoken is in the past tense. So the Lord Jesus came in the present but he had spoken in the past. And when did he speak in the past? Well, Hebrews 1 and verse 1 tells us, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. He spoke through Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Hosea, and Hosea, and Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. He spoke through the Old Testament scriptures, the law, and the prophets, and the Psalms. He spoke through the law of the Lord. That's what Psalm 119 is all about. And notice what the Lord having spoken did. Notice what the Lord giving His written word did. If I had not come, and if I had not spoken, by the way, He came in fulfillment of all that He had spoken in the Old Testament Scriptures. If I had not spoken, they had no sin. But now, now, because I've come, because I have spoken unto them, because of the Scriptures, because of the written law, they have no cloak for their sin. Folks, think about it. The law takes away our cloak. It takes away our covering. It strips away our pretense. The law exposes us in all of our sin and rebellion. The law exposes our heart. Paul said in Romans 7 and verse 7, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. We would not have known adultery, including adultery committed in the heart by looking on a woman or a man to lust after them, or fornication, or murders, murders which includes hating our brother, or thefts, or covetousness, or deceit. We would not know any of the things that are in our heart except by the written law of God. Paul wrote in, in Romans 3 and verse 20, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And John wrote in 1 John 3, 4, 
Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And so the law takes away the cloak under which men hide, and it exposes their sin. Paul said it this way in, in Romans 3 and verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, listen, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That is what the Lord Jesus is talking about. They have no cloak for their sin. And men don't like that. Men don't like that. We don't like that. Men don't, don't, don't want their mouths to be stopped. Men don't want to be guilty before God. In fact, they hate it. They hate it. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It's at war with God. And it's... It's enmity against His law, against His Word. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. Men don't want to come to the light because we don't want our deeds to be exposed. We don't want our deeds to be reproved. Now, what does this have to do with the world's hatred of Israel. Well, let's go back to Romans 9 and verse 4. Because here in Romans 9 4, Paul tells us that to Israel pertaineth the giving of the law. The law, the written word of God. This law that exposes our hearts. This law that lays us bare before God. This law that gives us the, the, the message that we are without hope and without God in the world. But also, this law, this book, this written word of God that gives us the glorious message of the gospel. That was given to Israel. They were the holy men of God there in the Old Testament who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's the apostles in the New Testament. Jews. Jews. Matthew and Mark and John and Paul and James and Peter and Jude. Who were the holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It was the Jews that God used to fulfill his promise of Psalm 12 and verse 7. That he would keep his words. That he would preserve them from this generation forever. I came across something written by Dr. D.A. Waite that applies to what we're talking about here. He says, The Mesoretic Hebrew Old Testament text and the received Greek New Testament text, the Textus Receptus, 
are accurate and preserved copies of the inspired, inerrant, infallible scriptures handed down by the Jews of the Old Testament and by the apostles, Jews of the New Testament. They were carefully copied by their custodians. And I would say that these custodians were Jews by and large. And the result of all that is that we hold in our hands tonight the King James Bible, the inspired, infallible, inerrant, preserved Word of God. And the world hates the Jews for that. I believe. What is it, folks, that sets boundaries? What is it? What is it that defines right and wrong? Where's the only place in all of the world that we can find truth? Where is it? What is it that makes up the bands and the cords that hold society and civilization together? What is it that argues against all of the lies of the father of lies, the devil? We've talked about some of these things. What is it that argues against climate change with irrefutable facts? We're fixing to have the warmest year on record. I just started to jump up and down tonight when I heard that. It can be hazardous to your health to watch the news. We're going to have the warmest year ever. How do they know that? What is it that argues against this, this foolishness of climate change with irrefutable facts? With irrefutable facts. In, in um, Genesis chapter 9 and Jeremiah chapter 5, what is it that stands in the way of abortion? What is it that stands in the way of abortion on demand? Because of its plain and irrefutable teaching that life begins at conception. What is it that stands in the way of homosexuality as being an alternate lifestyle? What is it that stands in the way of homosexuality and condemns it as an abomination? What is it that stands against the transgender movement? And cause the mutilating of the bodies of men and women and children through surgeries and hormone therapy so they can take on the appearance of something that they're not a man or a woman. Who calls that an abomination? What is it that argues for the Second Amendment? What is it that teaches us that guns are not the problem? The heart of man is the problem. What is it that stands against pornography and every other evil that the heart of man imagines? What is it? It's one thing. It's the law of God. And the giving of that law pertaineth to the Israelites, to the Jews. And they're hated for it. They're hated for it. Because we believe this book, I want you to think about this. 
Because we believe this book. And because we stand for this book, we are identified with the Jews. As we stand for the, what we've come to know as the Judeo-Christian values that this book teaches. And therefore we're hated. Satan hates the Jews and he hates the Christians. Because it's the Jewish Old Testament. It's the Christian New Testament that I would say that was written primarily, I think, with the exception of Luke by Jews. It's here that God has revealed himself to men in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who went to the cross of Calvary and was made sin for us and gave his life and shed his precious blood that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's this book that teaches us that he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no man comes to the Father but by him. It's this book that teaches us that neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This, I believe, is the first reason that the Jews are hated. Now, you've already guessed the second reason. But we're going to have to talk about that in another message, Lord willing. The question that we need to think about tonight is this. Are we ready? Because if we're Christ's, then we are Abraham's seed. Spiritual Jews, if you will, as Abraham's seed. Are we ready for the hate? Are we ready for the hate? It's something else we want to talk about. Lord willing, maybe Sunday night. But are we ready for the hate that's coming our way? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing book that teaches us exactly what's going on here in this world, why it's going on that gives us an ability to understand the times that we might know what we ought to do if we are willing to study to show ourselves approved unto you and to be workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Thank you for our time together tonight and for allowing us to study your word together for a few moments. And we pray that you might use it for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.